there's a French phrase, l'appel du vide, the call of the void. It refers to the urge to do random harm in everyday life, to swerve into oncoming traffic or jump from something tall. The call of the void is scary because it reminds us that the gap between normalcy and chaos is razor thin. But the void doesn't want you to jump. The void just wants you to see the fall is really there and that part of you wants it. Feeling the desire to jump into nothingness while choosing to remain in this timeline, that is how we learn to embrace the void. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Episode 6 of Embrace the Void, where it's fatalism in the streets and existentialism in the sheets. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me for all eternity is my partner in crime, GW. Well, it's only How's the, it's only eternity yeah. if you believe that like we're going to exist beyond this mortal life. Sure, or the time is... No, I, I think that if, if there's any afterlife or non-afterlife, you're still going to have to be stuck with me in some sort of way. Oh, okay. We're bound together for all time. Gotcha. The pact is sealed, my friend. <laughs> How's the void been treating you, buddy? Uh, you know, um, this is completely unrelated to the void, but got some super good news uh, for no one that seems to care. The Tony Awards has reinstated the sound Tony for best sound in a play and best sound in a musical. And since that is my uh, career field, I am super excited about that. And very few people are, but... Uh, that's amazing. I care, and I want to give you congrats for that, even though I know it feels bittersweet because the Tonys are just doing it because a bunch of people pressured them to, and it was all weird, and they're super weird about it. Yeah. But at least you got your Tony back, and in a couple of years, it'll be fine again, right? Uh, hopefully. Well, uh, despite, um, being very busy, and I haven't seen you very much recently, um, we've had a couple of... We had those great two-part Andrew Torres episodes that you managed to get out. And uh, I want to give a thanks again to Andrew Torres from Opening Arguments for Absolutely. joining us for that discussion. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and a shout out on uh, his show, Opening Arguments, which was great. Yeah, and thanks to everybody from uh, Opening Arguments and Scathing Atheists who've come across and uh, are giving us a listen. We appreciate your, uh, your listenership and we'll try to keep it entertaining. Absolutely. So uh, maybe we'll start off with that listener question you got. Yeah. In the chamber. Are you African American? I don't. I don't understand the question. Yeah. So if uh, anyone else wants to send us a listener question, you can just email us at voidpod at gmail dot com, or if you send a um, a private message through Facebook or through Twitter or even on Patreon, we'll get it either way. Um, yeah. So our our first legitimate, we don't actually know this person, they're not related to us question, listener question <laughs> is from Anthony Fortdeer, and he says, I overheard some people today talking about hope and hubris, and it raised a question for me I thought the two of you might be interested in discussing. Do we, as a country or and or as a species, deserve the timeline we're in? Regardless of who or what is responsible for the void, or whether that's nothing and nobody, is it is this timeline a just one? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and you said you thought you had a good idea of what, what, what way I was going to break on this. Yeah, yeah. If you believe that 
uh, we don't have free will, then that would mean that we don't deserve it because it's not our fault. That's my that's True. that's my very small non philosophical mind assumption of no, what that's, you would. That's, yeah, that's the dead on accurate conclusion that I would come to in the ultimate truth kind of way. Like no one has free will, so they don't deserve anything. So we don't deserve the void. The void just is, and we are just in it. Uh, we could, of course, following in the wonderful footsteps of O.J. Simpson, say. If we deserve something, do we deserve the void or do we deserve something better than the void? Right. We can establish that hypothetical. What do you think at that point? I don't know. Like, uh, this isn't something I've sort of given a lot of thought. I feel like you have to have you have to have clear positions on higher level stuff, like whether you're a consequentialist or not, like whether uh, depending mm -hmm. on your views of morality um, and ethics, mm -hmm. which is obviously something we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I honestly, I just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a great question because I don't like for me, I have no idea. Yeah. I think cases can be raised on both sides. And I think, right. If I want to play for uh, the dark side of things, right. The, the argument that we deserve it is that whenever given anything like a free choice, human beings seem to pick the void over and over again. Right. Like, Democratically speaking, uh, I was thinking this week about as we were watching, you know, um, uh, Turkey and France and sort of the current situations with democracy, um, the Churchill quote that it's the least worst option. I think I think he's being generous. I think there is no least worst option sometimes. So, like, I think you can entertain the position that. There are only bad options, and you can roll the dice with each bad option, and you'll get some benefits and some disadvantages. Yeah, it's it's sort of difficult. Like the whole thing of like deserving. I think part of it goes to whether or not you believe in punishment, right? Mm -hmm. As at like if someone does something, whether intentional or not, is sort of like irrelevant. But if if someone does something that is considered wrong, objectively or culturally, uh, does that person deserve to be punished? Well, and and, I and and I'm sorry, just let me finish this thought. So if yeah, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. I I have lately been thinking about this a lot, and um, uh, Michael Wood Jr. He really made me sort of think about this, and uh, I honestly have been siding on. The side of that no no one deserves to be punished um, mm -hmm. in that in terms of like what does punishment do other than give satisfaction to the person and or uh, um, related people family friends and, and such uh, who were harmed in the process whether it was physically harmed or financially harmed or wronged in some way they feel some sense of justice but regardless like removing that like what what purpose does it serve and it seems to serve none like it's not really a deterrent because people keep doing it so punishment doesn't really serve that um, so I, I think, I've been, I think I've been milling that punishment over a can be a deterrent I mean, I think there are ways both rehabilitative and through deterrence that you can justify um, various forms of what we would call punishment. I, I obviously totally agree with you on the punitive side of things that what we would call the retributive side, where 
I don't think we should punish people because they deserve it in any sort of way. And, and similarly, I don't think that human beings deserve the void because human beings don't deserve anything. They just exist um, is sort of, which is weird given how we're going to talk about moral realism in a second. But what I do think is that in the sense of moral um, responsibility and therefore um, uh, what we can uh, say people deserve, I don't think we can say that human beings deserve the void. I think we can say that human beings are made of the void and so are compelled to perpetuate the void all around them, even though it doesn't benefit them to do so. And that our goal hopefully is to help them survive and maybe even transcend the void. Maybe. Yeah. And just get to Star Trek. Like that's all we need. Once we get to Star Trek, everything's going to be so much better. (laughs) Or like Buddhist, you know, some sort of Buddhist transcendent state either way. Yeah. Like starships or, you know, non-personalized selves, one or the other. Right. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, and then if we deserve it and like, you know, to be honest, I'll make jokes about it on our various, you know, media interfaces that uh, human beings deserve exactly what they're getting because I look at the way that they react in places where they're given the opportunity to make a choice between the worst timeline or the not worst timeline. And they tend to not have a great track record for picking the not worst timeline. But, you know, in, in, Ultimately, we know that's because they were created from the void and they don't know any better a lot of the time. And so it goes. Yeah. And we must sympathize for them. Yeah, yeah. And and it's sort of like, it begs the question of, or it's I guess it's a similar question of like, does one generation deserve to be punished for the previous generation's misdeeds? Uh, which seems like the answer seems to clearly be no. And so if you use that sort of train of thought, then uh, I would definitely side on the human humans humans uh, do mm-hmm. not deserve the void or deserve this timeline. Yeah, and and someday we'll talk. I think we should talk about moral luck and really sort of drive home why we think that not only is it unhealthy to have the mindset that people deserve to suffer, but that once you alleviate that mindset, you can do better things, and that right. We can you can structure more functional systems that promote more flourishing. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, appreciate the question. I think pretty much got there. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Even um, though I sort of skirted around it for the most part. I hope I, no, I, I kind think, of answered you know, it. <laughs> ultimately, no one deserves it. Uh, from a comedic perspective, absolutely we deserve it because we're fucking horrible. But we're only fucking horrible because we're made of fucking horrible stuff, which is the void. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for that question. And if you, you know, want to get your questions in, you know, submit. And definitely if you're a patron and you want to um, hear something specific, you know, get on that. Let us know. Absolutely. This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? So this time we're going we're gonna to focus in on some void philosophy because um, we've gotten sort of a lot of interest in um, philosophical issues and specifically some requests to talk about some more kind of um, deep dive philosophical issues, I would say. I think um, it seems like our audience knows kind of the intro level stuff and they want to do a little bit of the more sort of complex stuff. So I think we're going to, if you're cool, we're going to skip right on by just sort of the 101 ethics and talk about meta ethics instead. Going right into the deep end. 
right into the deep end because we got, especially we got some patrons again who want to hear about this stuff specifically, and we're happy to chat about it. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons in which meta ethics is important, and uh, it sort of gets short shrift because it's very theoretical. It can feel like, and so it's our job to tie a tie a string to that balloon and pull it back down to earth. Yeah. So I I have a question just as a jumping off point, right? Uh, sure. I think sometimes there's a bit of confusion around even just the term ethics. So can you mm-hmm. give us like the textbook definition, Professor Rabinowitz? What is ethics? I don't. I don't have a perfect. I'm like you know. <laughs> I, I immediately want to go to Socrates and say like you don't. You're not going to have a perfect definition. But here's what I'll tell you is my working definition as an ethicist, right? So first of all, I'll tell you that I use ethics and morals interchangeably. I don't. Some people sort of used to distinguish between one of them as being related to a particular job like uh, medical ethics or legal ethics. But I think at this point, they've mostly become synonymous. Um, And I I basically define morality or ethics as the study of what works and is good for um, conscious beings. That, you know, it's the sort of like botany is the study of what's good for plants. Um, Gotcha. Ethics is the study of what's good for conscious beings. Great. And so metaethics would be the ethics of that. <laughs> metaethics would be the study of the nature of truths and facts about the field of ethics. So uh, one way to think about it is that ethics tends to give you normative claims, claims like you ought to do this or that. Normative just means based on a a norm like a social norm action guiding an equilibrium you know like um don't murder is normative right it's telling you don't do x or something like that right maximize utility is normative right and it comes and and it comes from like a systemic thing sometimes or you know like whatever it is like just just like think about the two levels is like one tells you what you ought to do and ought not to do however you cash that out systemically personally subjectively whatever and then the higher level or you know not higher is more important but higher is like more theoretical is like what are the nature of moral truths are they like the laws of gravity or are they like legals facts where we just make them up as a society and they are whatever we think they are interesting does that make sense so like a meta-ethical claim isn't necessarily going to tell you whether or not it's okay to kill someone in one situation or another, it's going to tell you what is the nature of your obligation to some other individual and where does that obligation originate from or something like that. And can you give me an example of how, of, of what that would be? Yeah. So it can be like um, a meta ethical claim would be the claim that morality originates from God's divine commands. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't tell you whether God wants you to, love everyone or murder everyone because blood for the blood god right both of those are are potential first order ethical theories that occur arise from the meta ethical view that god wants you to do x right basically gotcha gotcha right um and so what i'm eventually going to argue for here is a form of what we would call ethical realism um which i think another good way to think about this is the question of meta-ethics is uh, not what you ought to do, but is morality real? 
And so, and and what is real? Like what? Right. Like we're getting super right. into the weeds. Like, and I think that's the point, right? What? Like, right. how do you define real? Right. And so, uh, you know, there are functional ways to define it and absolutist ways to define it. Right. I think a functional. Is, way isn't to this the whole cogito ergo sum? The only Latin I know. <laughs> right. I think therefore I am. You believe that you exist. Therefore, you, which is false. Actually, I think Descartes wrong about that. You don't actually exist, even though you think you exist. Um, but we can we can save that for we'll the pin, moment. We'll, we'll put we'll pin that put, for another episode. Yeah, put the hand, you know, the holy hand grenade away for a second. Um, <laughs> what we're concerned about here is: um, Do we think that morality is real? And so, when we mean real, it could mean something like when we say the law of gravity is real. Okay. You know so I mean? so it, it's testable. It, Yes, it's testable. It's it gives predictive facts. Um, it's true, independent of our beliefs of it, which is going to be the key feature. And is it is it objective. true, independent of time? It's true. It, it can be context sensitive, but it is not dependent on our beliefs about the facts of the situation. Okay, it's dependent on the objective facts of the situation, independent of our beliefs about it. Great. Right. So like I'm, I, I, I'm leading into this, since you're not the um, the, the philosopher side of this, I am not. I asked, <laughs> I'd hope that, you, you know, you would. And you said you were uh, thinking about this, um, considering your intuitions about the question, is morality real or what that means? Right. So given a little bit of context, like is the law of gravity real? What are your feelings about this? In terms of my understanding of is the law of gravity real? Yes, and that that comes with the backing of yes, and it's also lives in a scientific world where that has the potential to change as new information comes about, right? Like even mm -hmm. we just recently discovered gravitational waves, which was a theory, and now we've actually measured it and it's proven to be a real thing, right? right. So even our laws of gravity have recently been changing in terms of our understanding of it. So if, if that's similar, right, if morality is... Uh, behaves in a similar fashion, then my assumption would be, and correct me if I'm wrong uh, or if I'm misstating this, my, my assumption would be that morality would be something that with new information or with new, uh, uh, over, over time, we develop a greater understanding as to what that morality is. Uh, mm -hmm. And this probably feeds right into your overall argument, which is that morality is an objective thing. That mm -hmm. over time, humans, <laughs> I see you smiling, no, <laughs> humans, humans are, are slowly having a better understanding of morality uh, throughout time. Yeah. Yeah, you fed perfectly into my argument. Right. So, so let me ask you this question, right? I yeah, want to sort of take the devil's advocate well, hold, side. Well, hold on, hold on. Okay, I want to say, right, like, before we, before you, you know, now play counterpoint, like, yeah. I think your intuitions are good there, and I think a lot of people have that sort of ethical intuition towards a kind of objectivism that says, you know, we used to think slavery was good and now we think it's bad and we're right now and we were wrong then. Well, that wasn't my intuition. I was just drawing the, the comparison based on what you said. Okay. I was about to go fair into my, my, my intuition. Okay, fair enough. Go into your, your actual position then. Although that sort of makes sense in terms of how you sort of set it up, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe this is partially my not full understanding or my ignorance of morality altogether or holistically. Um, but morality feels very sort of like a subjective thing. Sure. And like, who's to say that in a couple of centuries, we find that slavery is actually a moral thing again, right? Great. Because then yeah. that would sort of go in the opposite direction. But, uh-huh. right, because with, with science, we've always sort of been progressing upwards, and it doesn't really sort of, like, turn around every now and then. I get a, no. <laughs> and then the really question bad. is, does, does morality ever turn around? Um yeah, I so my, my intuition, so so to just summarize, yeah. right, in one mm-hmm. sentence, my intuition is that yeah. morality is subjective based mm-hmm. on cultural normative behavior. Yeah, and, and great. So your, your whole layout there of your intuitions really sort of sets the dynamic tension that exists, I think, in metaethics. Mm-hmm. This, this conflict between our feeling that there are these truths that seem so objectively true, morally speaking, but at the same time, our understanding of cultural context and, and the way that we are developing uh, creates this pull towards subjectivism and that we have to kind of figure out how to balance that dynamic tension. Yeah, like there's there are some, I want to say it's like, in nor like norway or sweden or something like that where in some of the really small towns the way that they handle justice they don't really have a court system and like if um if two people like if one person steals from another person that family the afflicted family basically gets to decide what happens to the person who has done the wrong and oftentimes what it relates to is they like they put them on house arrest and they can't leave their house until they've sort of been forgiven and sometimes Mm -hmm. that will be an entire lifetime uh and that is a a a moral ethical correct thing to do i'm not and i'm not suggesting it is or isn't but it's it's Mm -hmm. a completely different way of looking at justice which uh i would sort of assume is the application of ethics or morality in a government system or in a societal system. Yeah, absolutely. And so another thing that you're bringing up here, which is important in this discussion, is how our meta-ethical view cashes out in terms of our views about things like cultural relativism, where we think that it's up to each society to decide what is right or wrong for them. Um, so yeah, I think you're hitting on a lot of the main problems that make this, I think, you know, we were saying at the beginning, meta ethics gets short shrift, I think, because it's very theoretical, but I think whether or not morality is objective or subjective has real applications for how we treat each other, how we demand, um, moral compensation of others and how we structure our society. So, so what is your sort of argument on why objective morality is correct for last? I, I, I know that's not the right term. I'm not sure what the right term no, is. No, that's, that's, that's close enough. Um, uh, so I think, first of all, we got to say, what is the key distinction between objective and subjective here? I want to be really precise about our language. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the important thing here that makes something objective is that it is belief independent 
That doesn't mean that it doesn't depend on the nature of conscious beings. You're going to see in a little bit that I think that ethics is about the nature of conscious beings. Um, but it isn't about what we as conscious beings believe about certain ethical claims. Right. Like, so, like if, like mm -hmm. if uh, an alien race, like, mm -hmm. like an alien race would actually be operating under, oh, under the same objective morality. Yes. Right. Any sentient, any sentient being that has an inner world like ours that involves pain and pleasure and flourishing and not flourishing is going to exist under the same basic ethical morality that we all exist under, I think. Great. Same thing with animals, same thing with any, any sentient being, really. Um, and now, I'm sorry, I, mm -hmm. just because we're talking about semantics, I just want to clarify. Do you distinguish sentient being from conscious being as separate things or using them synonymously? Because um, I noticed you... You went back and forth on those terms. Yeah, I, th I think it, we we tend to use consciousness in relationship with a more level of developed level of sentience, where it's got a bit of self awareness to it, a reflectiveness to it. Whereas by sentient, I mean literally can feel pain and pleasure. Uh, the the most sort of baseline, uh, you know, we think of an inner world, the, the inner space in which experiences occur or don't occur. Rocks have no inner world that we know of, but like. Even uh, the most basically evolved um, uh, animal that has a central nervous system probably has some feeling of pain and pleasure. And then as it gets more complex, you get a sense of self-awareness and things like that. For that, I, I tend to try to use the word consciousness, whereas for sentient, I just mean has an inner world of any level of complexity. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, and so objective to me means there are certain truths that are true independent of what any conscious being believes about those truths. Great. Um, so, for example, uh, putting a conscious being into, or even a sentient being into unnecessary suffering for no benefit is wrong is an objective fact. No amount of coming together as a group of people and agreeing that it's okay to torture this particular species of sentient beings is going to make doing so moral. I, I would sort of amend that statement with like unwanted pain, right? Some people, yeah. some people, you know, see pain as pleasure, right? Like, you know, two yeah. people playing a game of like boxing, right? right. <laughs> someone actually engaging in boxing as, as a sport, right, is inflicting, mm -hmm. is intentionally having someone inflict pain on them, but it's for sort of a, a specific purpose. The, um, the edge case that I, I used, that I developed in college was non-consensual recreational torture. Mm -hmm. So torturing an individual in a way that produces no viable good consequences purely for the recreational activity of the individual committing the torture against the consent of the individual being tortured yeah, yeah. Is, is wrong in all situations, independent of what any individual believes about its wrongness. Yeah. Great. So, great. yeah. So that's, that's the kind of objectivism that we're talking about here. No amount of us willing it to be otherwise will make it otherwise. Great. So then, so then your definition of subjective would be, you can will it to be otherwise, right? Great. Anything that can be changed. Like, um, you know, what we decide is the correct beard length for our culture, whether it's clean shaven or 
you know, really long beards or whatever people want. I think there's no, there's no, you know, you could change it around is that sort of thing. Or like, what's a good movie, right? We debated Logan, <laughs> right? Like where you were, like, where you were subjectively right. And I was ob- objectively right. <laughs> right. Or the other way around, but it doesn't matter, but it's fun to play that it does. Yeah. Right. It's fun to, and like, there are objective facts about aesthetics, right? I think to some extent you can talk about like, how well does a movie hold together and some movies hold together better than others and something like that. Well, I think when it comes to art, there are no objective truths. All right. So we'll do an episode on aesthetics sometimes. Oh yeah. That'd be great. So, okay. I, I think morality is different from aesthetics. I think for morality, at least separate from aesthetics, we can say that there are objective truths independent of what we think of them. And that's what we're trying to secure. And that's a weird position. And some of your intuitions are against that. Now that we've established that position, would you like to oppose it? The the first one, which I'm, I bet is the most obvious, is uh, who's to say, or better, how, how does one know that a moral thing, I don't know a, a better word to describe it as, as some mm-hmm. moral thing. A, mor- a moral truth or a moral fact. A moral fact to be objectively true or subjectively true? And how is that determination made? I like to compare it to science, but I think the most functional comparison because of the quantifiability issues is to compare it to psychology. So let me ask you, who gets to decide what is a healthy mental state versus an unhealthy mental state? And do you believe that there are more or less healthy mental states? I, if the question is who determines that, it's, it's, uh, I always get them mixed up, but it's either psychologists or psychiatrists or both. I'm not sure who. Psychologists are the ones that I always don't get prescribe drugs. That's the difference. Psychiatrists are the, the doctors who don't prescribe drugs. Psychologists are, are talking therapists who, sorry, sorry uh, psychiatrists are the ones who prescribe drugs. Psychologists are the ones who don't prescribe drugs. And it's a very different sort of, I mean, like, they work together, mm-hmm. but they have sort of different backgrounds. The, the psychiatrist is a more medical background. The psychologist is a more um, purely psychological background. I think, I don't know actually who write. I think, I think psychologists are predominantly responsible for writing the, the diagnostics manual that is considered sort of the textbook of mental disorders. But let, let's assume for the sake of argument that some, some mix of, you know, experts in the field of mental health are the people's responsible for determining, you know, what tends to be healthy versus what tends to be unhealthy. And these are the kind of people that come together and remind us that Donald fucking Trump is not cabinet A. Right. <laughs> right. right. And there's so, yeah, an objective so- fact of it, it seems like, right? We've all known people who are dealing with mental illness. And I think, to, you know, it's, it's an error to say that mental illness is subjective, right? To say that you could just will yourself to not be cr- you know um um, clinically depressed for example and like well i think i think like it depends on on how you define willing right because if if someone is someone is experiencing clinical depression let's say right and through uh, um talk therapy they're able to combat that and come back from it and for lack of a better term i know that the uh psychiatrists uh, psychology community doesn't really like to use the term healed, but uh, if they sort of heal themselves through just 
vocal interaction, that's sort of willing it to go away, right? No, because it's it's the difference between what what I mean by willing it to go away is like literally saying you can just stop being depressed now. Just stop it. Right. Like the act of talk therapy is a lengthy process that involves working through a bunch of experiences. You can't just make all of that stuff go away by willing hard enough without that process. Well, let's let's that's use, what I mean. Yeah. It, well, let's use something just because I like to play devil's advocate. Let's use something okay. that's not sort of a mental health. Like, let's mm-hmm. use, like, someone who's an athlete, like, mm-hmm. you know, running, like a track star or something who's running and has to will themselves to push past the psychological pain in order to win, right, win the race, right? Are, isn't that where they make a mental decision, like, I'm going to push myself to mentally be able to push back this pain so I can physically push myself further? Yes, and, they, and you know, we can debate sort of how how that's a mix of mental and physical processes and I'm, I'm i'm sort of a non-dualist when it comes to mental versus physical states and i think that there are ways that like you know the, the mind can push the body to go farther and those sorts of things i, I I'm, I'm concerned we're getting a little bit too deep into this that yeah. i was trying to get at here which was just that like um, there are facts and truths about mental states even though we can't build a machine that can measure objectively or quantifiably certain features of our internal mental states, we still believe that there are experts about mental states and that we can have a discussion about what is objectively true and false about conscious beings is what I'm sort of, what I think is important here. Sure. I I think like my pushback a little bit is with, you know, there's still a lot that's being developed and understood in terms of the way that the human brain works, the way consciousness works. And like even, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He wrote this book on flow. I don't know if you've read it. Cheek Sent Me High. Yes. Yeah, Cheek Sent Me High is the guy. Oh, okay. I didn't know how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. Yeah, it's a right, weird looking name. Right, Sorry. where he, he basically like mm-hmm. presents a way for us. He first like gives this, states like what flow is in this like, he uh, prescribes it to people who are like really creative, who sort of come up with these, are able to sort of get into the flow and working on something, and that there you can actually control that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a big fan of flow states, and yeah. I, I like the research about them, and I think that they exist, and I think that they are proof of my view that there are objective facts about psychology and, by extension, morality. Actually, okay. I think that. What Cheek Sent Me High's research shows is that for developed conscious beings, there are these states of connectedness where the self and the other can integrate in a functional activity that are healthy for the organism and that our, our morality is grounded in achieving those kinds of states specifically, actually. So I think it's great that you're, you bring Cheek Sent Me High into this because I think flow states are, are the goal of, of a good functioning ethics, I think. Right. And so, like, going back to, like, what your original thing was, was saying, like, mm-hmm. there's, you know, objective. The psychological community has sort of objective states in terms of mental health. And mm-hmm. you made the statement of, you can't will yourself to be better. And I, I think that Chick Set Me High is an example of how you can will yourself, not in terms of mental health, but will yourself to have a different mental state. It's, it's, it's sort of complicated. It's like, uh, so when you do the flow state kind of work, 
you you do a mix of internal and external balancing that allows one to achieve that flow state. So for example, you know, like imagine that you're doing your your sound recording work mm-hmm. and you're, you know, somebody next door is like drilling away on a wall or something like that, right? You can't will the quality of your sound recording work to be perfect despite that horrible noise. You have to create a proper environment in which that recording can work, which might mean getting that person to stop making that noise or moving your environment. So that's what sure. I mean by objective is that like you can't you can't will a perfect recording out of that imperfect environment. But what you can do is recreate an environment that is functional and then enter that flow state in which you can make that good recording. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I still I still sort of disagree, but I, but so we don't get too much in the so, weeds on yeah. this. No, Let, I mean, let's like, go. Yeah, no, I think it's important to disagree because I think the position that I'm offering, I should tell you, is the minority view for a lot of people. Yeah, but the meta ethical, the moral realist view is weird. I think a lot of people think is one of the main objections to it, and that that weirdness suggests that people think that morality is not in fact real, and that it makes more sense to say that it's not real, and that there's sort of a variety of kind of objections that you can raise to it. Sure. Sure. So, all right. So, uh, so going back to the conclusion you were, you were leading me along, uh, mm-hmm. uh, can you pick it back up from, you were, you were making the parallel to the way that, uh, psychologists define mental health, right? Right. So you were asking about who gets to define what is morally true. Right. And I think the answer is, um, some mix of experts and um, scientific evidence and a bunch of work done by philosophers together uh, helps us to develop our concepts of what are objectively morally true. And as we develop those, the ones that, that appear to be most accurate are ones that we should apply in our behavior in society, pretty much. So let's, uh, can we start first with like an example of like an easy one? Like I, I would assume an easy example would be like murder. Right. You think that society shouldn't murder, you know, like people in society shouldn't murder. And you think that society should make a law that decreases the likelihood that people will engage in murder by, you know, leveling stiff penalties against people who engage in murder, because we think that there's some deterrent effect against that. And so the question then is, what makes murder bad? Is it bad because just because we as a society decided it's bad? Or did we as a society observe some fact of reality and from that derived our law that it is in fact bad? Well, I wonder if it actually has to do with uh, our mortality and and our our connection with how fleeting life is and mostly to do with that very single cell organism perspective of self-preservation and this sort of goes against mm-hmm. it. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I think it's important to notice that moral realism goes along with those sorts of facts. So, you know, the question of where morality comes from, right? The reason um, some of our, our patrons are interested in this question is because uh, atheists get hit with this a lot, right? If we, don't believe that God exists and that God isn't the source of objective morality. Where is morality coming from for it to be objective? And my answer to that question, what I've, what I think is probably the strongest answer I've come up with is if you have a universe that has conscious beings or even sentient beings in it, right? 
the mere existence of those things creates certain moral truths about how one ought to act with regard to those beings. Facts like you ought not to just murder them, right? And that those facts are sort of like, you know, if you have a reality that suddenly has uranium in it, there are facts about the rate at which that uranium is going to decay. It's half-life, yeah. Right. Likewise, there are facts about what is going to be okay for conscious beings, and based on those facts, whether it's okay to treat them in certain ways or not in certain ways. So let me let me ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you a vegetarian? Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm not because I have trouble uh, with, and, and this is like a personal problem, um, since you ask. Uh, <laughs> I have always had difficulty with the texture of a lot of vegetables, and so I have trouble eating a lot of vegetables. And so I have trouble having a functional diet that's vegetarian. I am sympathetic to Peter Singer's ethical arguments and only eat meat that I get from a locally sourced organic um, grass fed, you know, trying to be as sort of um, conscious towards the animal as possible and eating less of it and that sort of thing. Because I do think that there are objective facts about how how much suffering it's, a, it's okay for us to put back into the world for our own survival. Yeah, I think it's interesting that all, all life as we know it, with uh, all animal life as we know it, only survives based on the consuming of other life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in plant life, m- the majority of plants don't consume other life in order to survive. Some do, um, uh, but most don't. And I, th- I think that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we can, have, you know, if we want to be pain in the ass philosophers, you know, it's only because of our speciesism and view that only things with a central nervous system have consciousness or sentience that we assume that plants don't suffer. And that, you know, if you think back to Fern Gully or something like that, right? Like, um, we don't know that, that a plant doesn't suffer when it gets killed. So maybe even being a vegetarian is immoral to some extent, but you know, I think the answer is you, you do what you have to do to survive. And so for an individual like me, where not eating meat would be a really difficult, perhaps impossible lifestyle to maintain. It then falls to me to do the best I can to limit the harm that I'm causing to the organisms that I eat in order to survive. Yeah. So, all right. So that's, that's. So now that you've got the argument from hypocrisy out of the way, what do you got? Well, (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that'd be funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, I mean, I'm a, I'm a horrible human being, but that doesn't mean my moral truths are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So we examined murder, right? Because that's the easy one, right? So then what I'm trying to think of, and I can't come up with one, and and I know you're really good at doing this, presenting uh, the opposite side with the best case that you could fight against, uh, which uh, is uh, really great that you do that. So what is, in your opinion, um, a something that is considered an objective moral truth that is questionable whether it is objective or subjective. Great. So I think like talking about <laughs> no, I think talking about sexuality is a good place. And it, and, and oh, that's where we can yeah. we can br- we can bring in an, an important other concept which is pluralism. Um yeah, I, give, I think, give me give me the definition of that. I've heard that term a lot and I think I know it, but I, I'm not clear. Yeah. So one issue I think that often comes up is that 
when you're doing the objectivist versus subjectivist debate, there's a conflation of those terms with absolutism versus pluralism or relativism. So the idea that like, if you're an objectivist, you think that the objective truth means that any behavior of a certain sort is wrong in all times and all situations, no matter what, or something like that. Um, where in reality, you could be an objective pluralist and say, there is, a, is a, there is a range of potential. So pluralism is saying there are multiple ethical views that could all be morally acceptable. So in the range of sexuality, for example, heterosexuality is morally acceptable. Homosexuality is morally acceptable. Polyamory might be morally acceptable. Polygamy might be morally acceptable. Chastity might be morally acceptable. So that would be a sort of pluralistic account of various sexual behaviors. So uh, I was, I like to listen to a lot of like talk radio before I really started getting into podcasts. I was listen, listening to this very right wing one and they were talking about their outrage with uh, exposing young children to homosexuality, even on like mm -hmm. base, like seeing two men or two women holding hands, walking down the street kind of a thing. And they were outraged at how it's being sort of shoved down kids' throats. I mm -hmm. didn't notice the irony in that terminology. <laughs> um, it was the only time I called into a radio station and I called in and talked to them and I said, all right, if your position is that you don't want sexuality to be thrust upon kids at a young age, then explain to me Disney. Explain to me every kid's show that shows like a prince and a princess getting together, right? Explain that to me. And, and they actually were like, oh, you make a good point <laughs> and had nothing right. they could say against it because I was 100% correct, right? Like if, if the argument is like sexuality should be thrust upon kids, then mm -hmm. that includes heterosexual, right? Yeah, and that, that's great. And that like, so what you had there was sort of what I think is the intuitively subjectivist response to some objectivist moralizers, right? The reality is they're not against sexuality, they're against non-heterosexual sexuality. Right. And you were calling in and saying, you know, there are other kinds of sexuality that might also be acceptable, and clearly you're for some kinds of sexuality. So I think the first thing we have to get past is the idea that when we reject subject subjectivism, we're not then going to turn towards the kind of old-fashioned objectivism that you saw in religion, where it meant you know, everyone had to have the same kind of marriage and, you know, had to act according to the Christian principles or something like that. Right. So, so the, the first reason I think people have a concern about objectivism is that the minute you start saying certain moral things are objectively better or worse than others, people get worried that you're going to start telling them that they have to live a certain kind of life or another. And it is true that there are certain behaviors that we're going to say are outside the bounds of what's morally acceptable, but that those bounds can be wide enough to engage a lot of different kinds of behavior and be, be within that scope. Yeah. So then let's, uh, I think I just thought of one that's a little bit more difficult, and that is like, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of murder, but it's not really. Like, what about a moral truth that might be okay subjectively is like, you know, when two countries go to war— and one country, like, and you're a soldier on the ground, and you wind up killing another soldier on the other side. Could there ever possibly be, like, 
a place where that is objectively okay? Like, in in what like should the person have not enlisted unless like it was a draft, which we'll sort of ignore that. But like, I guess mm-hmm. it, it's sort of a difficult question, and I'm not coherently sort of asking the question. But you get where I'm going at. Like, it's a case where like. For yeah. one side, it seems the moral right thing to do, and the other side, it's the moral right thing to do. But then if you try to look at it objectively, like, it's still murder. It's still killing people. It's still uh, causing I, suffering. Yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, it could potentially be objective for both individuals. So if you imagine a hypothetical where two countries have gone to war because of factors beyond the control of individuals, and now as a result, those individuals want to protect their their homeland or their their loved ones or something like that, it could be moral for those individuals to engage in that conflict, even if both sides, neither side is, you know, like, you know, I think the Israeli-Palestinian crisis is a situation like this where because of harms to both sides, you can make a case that everyone is is justified in a sense for engaging. But the the ideal thing to do would be to to sort of de-escalate potentially. And I'm, and I'm wondering if, like, there's differences, and this might be the whole pluralism thing, like, mm-hmm. from the individual's perspective, it is objectively okay for them to sort of do that. But from the perspective of the governments, right, they may be doing it because they're yeah, just trying absolutely. to get more power, right? So it is it mm-hmm. is uh, um, subjectively, from their point of view, the right thing to do, but objectively, from that perspective, it's wrong for both of them to be doing it. <laughs> yeah. I think that that those both things could be true, right? You could have a government that's engaged in an unjust war, like for example, the Civil War, right? If if we are sympathetic to the advocates in favor of of Southern heritage, there were individuals in the South who weren't for slavery and and thought that it was about states' rights and were defending their territory and that sort of thing and. You know, I think that that there are parts of that that are true. I think that we can't ever ignore that it was also about slavery. But I think those facts could mean that certain individuals were morally justified in their particular behavior, especially in that sort of heinous situation. Um, Let me let me try this. Uh, I think one thing to help you out with that's a little tricky here is that the main arguments against objectivism are more philosophical. They're less like well, what do you do about murder or something like that? And they're more like, um, isn't it weird to imagine that ought statements are facts about reality the same way that the law of gravity or something like that is a fact about reality? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so this this originates with sort of the, the is-ought problem or things like that, right? Where we... We can make statements about facts, right? Uh, the the world is such, people are such, that sort of thing. The world is round. It's not fucking flat, you idiots. That kind of thing. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Prove that it. the world's not round. <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> That's easy. Um, yeah, but when we are dealing with ought claims, it feels like to some people, those are just substantially categorically different kinds of claims than is claims. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if I have an is claim about gravity, that is going to produce consistent results 100% of the time. Right. Right. I I can offer a predictable outcome that's going to happen every single time 
because I'm describing a law-like feature of reality that appears to be a causal relationship as best as we know them. Yeah, the difficult part is it's it's a lot of time, a lot of cases, it's not measurable. It's not measurable. That's, that's the tough part, right? That, and that's why it's sort of like I I've been struggling with the correlation with science only because in science one of the tenets of scientific method is that it's it's a measurable thing right so right. it's a repeatable sort of test and that's that's the part i'm struggling with right and that's why i like to point to psychology because psychology i think is scientific but not necessarily measurable in the sense that it right. it deals with objective facts about consciousness that we don't have machines that can measure effectively right um and so but but it's still tricky because even a claim about consciousness is mostly, in theory, still primarily is claims. And so for a lot of people, it feels weird to say, you know, an ought claim, like one ought not to enslave people, is some fact of reality out there external from our beliefs about it. Yeah. So what I think the, the objectivist has to do is explain how that's not weird. It wouldn't be weird if God put it there, for example. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is where like the religious people have think they have it easier because they can say, and in a sense they do, right? If you have a magic creator, then you can just say magic creator, put the ought truths right where they, right where they belong. And right. that's that. There are right. And then, and then other people can sort of editorialize what, God did or didn't say, and then they point to that, even though someone edited it a right. hundred, couple hundred years ago. Right. Um, and they think that they have a solution there. I think that there's actually a problem there, and this gets to why I think we want to believe in moral realism and objectivism is because of this a question that I've talked about before on uh, one of the other podcasts, um, the Euthyphro Dilemma, um, which is a Socratic dialogue problem that it essentially boils down to the question of is something moral because we believe it's moral or do we believe it's moral because it is moral? The choice between objectivism and subjectivism really like, are we discovering that things are morally this way versus not, or are we just deciding that they are based on our own preferences? Yeah. And the problem can be applied to God. And with divine command theory, I think it's a pretty devastating critique to ask, does God determine that things are moral arbitrarily or is he driven by some fact of the matter beyond his omniscience and omnipotence that tells him, you know, genocide isn't moral and, and murdering babies isn't moral or something like that. Yeah. Well, I can't wait till uh, we start tackling religion because I love talking about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I think we're sort of coming to the end of this segment. Is there anything else that you sort of want to put a pin on uh, objective morality? Or I guess, I guess it was meta ethics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, there's so, there's so much to cover within this area, but I think what I sort of want to get at, right. This main, the main objection I think that I, I think people are worried about is that uh, an objective morality without God is weird. And that I don't think it's any more weird than consciousness. I think the consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness in psychology and in science um, proves to be this ongoing issue where quantifiability and measurability don't translate well while dealing with conscious beings, and that morality and moral truth work much the same way. That merely because we can't build a machine that measures moral truths doesn't mean that there aren't objective moral truths about one, what one ought to do versus what one ought not to do. It's, it's that problem with, like, religion in general where if 
science can't explain it, then it must be this magical thing, which isn't the case. It just means that we Mm -hmm. don't understand it yet. We can't measure it yet. Like for the longest time, we didn't know that the earth was round. And then once we were able to measure it, we were like, before that, it was this magical thing and, and ships would sail off the end of the earth, right? So let's switch gears to our hero of the week. Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. It it has to be like it, there's there's we didn't really have an option in this right. We don't have free will, uh, clearly. So uh, it has to be Papa Bear, good old Bill O'Reilly. Papa Bill O'Reilly, a hero, a hero amongst heroes, right? I feel like a lot of these are going to end up being sort of lifetime achievement awards, <laughs> possibly. So. And this one is impressive, right? Like, I was reading a Breitbart article about the impact of Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes on the right-wing community, and you can't honestly overstate how important these two individuals were in shaping the bigotry and the casual sexism that drove so much of right-wing talk media for so long. Yeah, like, O'Reilly was one of the biggest to sort of... Like, to give him credit, though, one, one of the things that a lot of those, like, deep conservative talk show, talk uh, radio talk show. What they don't do a lot of the times is is talk to people outside of their circle. And like to give O'Reilly his credit, he oftentimes brought in people that were contrary to his views. But like at the same time, he was very demeaning and just talked over them the whole times, which is which just like, oh, yeah, added to that whole confirmation bias for folks that are watching because he would just steamroll the shit out of them. Except for John Stewart, who was really good at pushing back against him. I mean he was a terrible he was a terrible fucking human being, let's be honest. I mean like didn't have any choice in the matter, sure, but like you you don't want to be that kind of person. Like and and he had horrible people working with him, like Waters, that prick who would follow people around and do horrible racist segments in Chinatown and stuff like that. Like this was this was a show that made casual racism just a, a mainstream part of that whole environment. Yeah, and and the the sort of like misinformation and giving it sort of credence and giving it a uh, um, like a pretty bow that you could sort of take over to your mom's house and it looks great, but it's still a steaming pile of shit. Like it, what he's done to sort of the national discourse has been fucking terrible i can't i can't remember who it was but he was interviewing um some older gentleman who uh uh, was like you're the reason why our country is shit (laughs) i can't remember who it was though do you remember um oh yeah i think i remember what you're talking about it was like Burkar rather or something one of the older news guys uh, um cronkite maybe i think was i was talking to sean hannity i think and was saying that oh it's like conflating a harm to society. And then like, you know, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly are indistinguishable. Yeah, it's easy to like, get them mixed up. We're starting to see reports now that Sean Hannity was also harassing people. And like, that's the, you know, there's so many levels to Bill O'Reilly's masterwork as a horrible human being. Like not only did he engage in casual bigotry, but for years he objectified women and was rude towards women. And it turns out was horrible towards women behind the scenes and and not only that, he proves that after all that, he walks away with what twenty five million dollars, yep. gets yep. to live his life. I I mean, I That's really that. hope that there's some traction that gets made on uh, any of the cases. Uh, I know, like how difficult it. Well, I that's wrong. 
I, I can understand and yeah. empathize with how difficult it is for a woman to try to bring uh, a case against someone, especially someone as powerful as him. Uh, uh, I, mm-hmm. I hope that one or many of them can find the power to actually bring suit against him. Yeah. I mean, some of them have, and some of them gotten payouts. And one of the difference that people have pointed out is that O'Reilly settled some of these cases where other individuals who happen to be president have not had to actually settle any of these cases yet. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, and it's interesting from what, from what I understand, no, I was going to understand um, Fox news has, uh, spent something like 70 million or whatever on various harassment issues. And something like two thirds of that went to payouts for Ailes and Bill O'Reilly to leave their yeah. shows. So it's not like the money is going towards the women. It's going towards the white men who have been doing these horrible things for their entire careers and are now going to walk away. Scott yeah, free. that's the tough part. And, and it's, it's exceptionally difficult because not uh, like not only are they sort of getting away with it, but in the eyes of the people that um, that like worship him, th- there's no difference, right? There, from their point of view, uh, he's wrong and clearly like is being uh, subjugated to this against his will, and like he clearly didn't do anything, oh, yeah. and uh, it's it's terrible. I. I- I've had people tell me that this is an attack yeah. from the left. And like, sure, to some extent, that's true, right? There was an organized campaign against the advertisers. But but like, there was an organized ad campaign against the advertisers because he has apparently been, you know, repeatedly engaging in sexual harassment of women in the, around the well, workplace. But it's that, like, but, morally but that's like that whole, like, if, right, if you like peed in my cornflakes because that's like my favorite metaphor right if you peed in my cornflakes and i like yell at you for it and you get defensive like well well you did blah 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 like it's just that it's it's defensive it's oh it's clearly an attack on the left mm-hmm. blah 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 but it, it sure. completely disregards and sort of changes the tone or the conversation about what really should be talked about which was here's a guy who is being misogynistic and sexually harassing women but it's not like they care yeah. about that because they fucking elected Donald Trump. Right. And that's the that's the best part of this and why I love Bill O'Reilly the most beyond even, you know, fuck it, we'll do it live, yeah. is um, <laughs> the fact that we all get to now stew in the cognitive dissonance that is watching a, a, a radio, you know, television pundit get fired for something that we weren't, that wasn't a deal breaker for our president, right? We know that Donald Trump is uh, has engaged in behavior that is very similar to what Bill O'Reilly was accused of. We've heard Donald Trump, in his own words, brag about that behavior. We heard Donald Trump, in his own words, defend Bill O'Reilly for this behavior. There is no daylight between the two of them, but one of them is president still. And that is voidy. As yeah, that's fuck. totally like points in your column, for sure. Oh. Oh, it's a deep, dark <laughs> void, my friends. I, I, don't, I don't know what else there, you know, like, there, what else is there to say? Years of racism capped off by reminding us that, that the perpetrators of sexual assault face no serious repercussions and could be yep. president. Bill O'Reilly will probably run for Congress now. He picks the right district. He could get into oh Congress or whatever. Don't even, you, I'm cutting that. I am editing that. 
I'm not sure how it happened, but we picked up a ton of new patrons. Deborah Smith, Michael Schaefer of Reason Real Estate, Lentil Sausage, Joel, Chad Trait, Goal, Emily Burke, and The Writer's Beard Show. We are currently at $63 an episode, just shy of our $100 goal, where we will start doing patron-only content regularly. At our next goal of $200, we will start doing an episode a week. If you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash embrace the void. If you can't support us financially, join us on Facebook and Twitter and tell your friends so Aaron can have some new people to argue with on social media. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.